But these conversations, as I've uh, told you before and do a little research and study here, is that it's very unusual in the ancient world for a rabbi, and especially a, uh, a popular rabbi, uh, to spend time with people. Uh, it is often the case that uh, there's very little, Josephus tells us, almost no history of rabbis having personal conversations. Uh, they're too important. And, you know, you can understand some of that, that they expect people to come to them and expect people to listen to them. And so you'll go to where Gamaliel is or Hillel or, or other great rabbis of that time uh, to, to listen and to learn and to grow from them. So, so these, this idea of conversation with Jesus is a fairly radical notion in the ancient world. I just, I just want to remind you, it, it is not common for these things to be going on in the ancient world. There's not much evidence in rabbinic literature. There's not much evidence in uh, the ancient world or ancient teachers where teachers would take the time to meet with individuals. I guess, you know, they kind of want to do the big crusade thing or whatever uh, instead of the individualized thing. So that, that being the backdrop, and then as well that most all of these things happened in Galilee, which was considered an area, if you will, where people did not respect uh, the Galileans as having much, many brains and certainly no interest in the law. And you can go back and listen to our first session if you'd like to listen to some of the, some of the context of that. But let me read along here, if you will, in John chapter 2, as we look at this uh, fascinating, at least it has been for me, it's gotten bigger all week uh, as I've studied it, uh, about this conversation with Jesus. John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman... What does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, now this is kind of interesting. Uh, we'll talk about this uh, conversation with Jesus here that he just says, you know, what about, what's that got to do with us? And then she just turns and says, hey, whatever he says, do it. You know, just, just whatever he says, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set for the Jewish custom of purification contained 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water so they may be filled up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some water now out and take it to the head waiter or the headmaster. There's some a suggestion there about the, the one who's kind of conducting the social uh, elements of the wedding. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine, he did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, and the head waiter called the bridegroom. And said to him, every man serves the good wine first. When the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, here's an interesting event, and probably every person that's ever gone to Sunday school and seen a flannel graph, if you know what those are, you're over 40. Uh, if you're under that, you have no idea what I'm talking about. I always remember that all the time they would stick it, and then our thing when we were boys was we are going to take bets on how long it was going to take for it to what? Fall off. There you go. You've been to the same Sunday school I've been to. Uh, but in this story, we have, we have this story again of a wedding. And, uh, you know, uh, as I was reflecting on this and, and working through it, this is one of those uh, great stories about Jesus' interaction with people. And I got to thinking about some of the memorable weddings that I've been a part of. You know, as a pastor, uh, or an ordained minister, rather, uh, I have had uh, some interesting uh, experiences in weddings. 
I always uh, say, you know, uh, you know, when people uh, ask me to, to, to marry them, I would say, well, I'm already married. I really can't. And so, you know, that's an old joke. Um, but then I'm always trying to wonder, what am I, am I going to conduct a wedding? Am I going to officiate? One of these days I want to come in a black striped shirt and, uh, as I officiate a wedding. Uh, I, just, they've been, you know, I, I've had some where we're outside where the bride was barefooted and wanted to be married. I don't know why. I, I, you know, I don't mess with that kind of stuff. I've had people to be in tucks and tails and, I mean, you know, just dressed to the nines. I've had weddings where we found out just before we went out that the guy who was going to kneel down at the altar, his groomsman had written on the bottom of his shoes, help. And, uh, um, yeah, that, yeah, uh-huh, yep. Uh, uh, that was a, a guy who was in my church as a police officer and there were a bunch of police officers. And I remember that wedding particularly that at the end I had uh, like 20 or 30 uh, police officers, detectives, all, you know, in Texas they carry their guns all the time. And I was a little nervous uh, because of that and uh, didn't know if there were any warrants out for me that I knew of. And I remember at the end of the wedding, it's been very stressful. This was one of the tucks and tails, I mean, really serious wedding. And I'm at the end and I'm standing there as everybody's going out. And as often I am, I get a word confused in my brain. And I remember after I said it, not before I said it, that I was confused at that moment with the words, congratulations and condolences. Yeah, that's how stressful it was. And so I said at the end of the wedding, may I be the first to introduce to you Mr. and Mrs. Craig Farrell? Condolences are in order. (laughs) Yeah, but nobody laughed. (laughs) And I thought, I have about a second to decide what I'm going to do. Am I going to go, oh no, and then probably be taken out and shot later? Or am I going to act like I'm funny? And I went. And the place cracked up. And then I left. I didn't go to the reception. I went home. Yeah. I've had some really memorable weddings. I remember uh, when we lived in Houston in 1980, we just, Becky and I had just been married ourselves, and we were living in, a, in an apartment complex. And I would go down there on Tuesday. That was my day off at, at the church. And I would go down and wash our clothes and do all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, I met a Vietnamese couple down there. Uh, one one afternoon, and they seemed to be very troubled. And I was trying to talk to them. They couldn't speak very English very well. And I said, well, my Vietnamese is terrible, but, uh, you know, we'll try here uh, to see what we can do. And and so we tried to kind of help this couple and, and get to know them and, and, and minister to them. Anyway, I, you know, uh, I invited them to church. And, and they were just kind, and they were trying to learn the language. And so uh, they, uh, they came to church. I don't know if they got any good out of it. Well, anyway, one day I'm at home on my day off, and uh, it's Houston, and I'm, I'm working around the house doing something. I can't remember. It probably wasn't very much. Um, I don't do much at the house. Uh, but I had a pair of running shorts and no shoes, and I was going to go run later, and no shirt. And this couple knocks on my door. I open the door. Mr. Cliff, we want to be married. I said, great. When would you like to do that? Today. <laughs> Not only today, Now. And I said, well, I don't, you know, I don't know if I can do this or not. And they said, we have license. And so I'm, it's there. And I'm thinking, well, we got to have witnesses, don't we? So I called the county clerk downtown. And I asked him, I said, do I, don't I have to have witnesses here for, for this wedding? And he goes, no, not in Texas. Boy, I was embarrassed to be a Texan. <laughs> 
they had everything they needed. So I walked back out and I said, are you sure you'll be married now? Yes. So I sat down in the floor, still no shirt, no shoes, running shirts on. And I looked at them and say, but do you understand the commitment that marriage is? And this guy went, co, co, commit, mit, what? <laughs> he didn't understand the word. And I'm thinking, what do I do? This was a memorable wedding. <laughs> and I remember joining hands and just saying, Lord, help these people <laughs> as they get married right now. Still no shirt, no shoes. <laughs> Help them and God bless them and may they live forever in harmonious marriage union. And I signed the license. <laughs> that was a memorable ceremony. I've often wanted a few more of those, you know. They're a little less stressful. This wedding that Jesus conducted or was a part of was pretty memorable. And as we look at it, there are some incredible things, if you will, that I think that we should look at. So let's look here in this conversation with Jesus. Number one, there is the setting of this conversation. Now let me set it both geographically and, if you will, sociologically. Uh, This is a big deal. Uh, The wedding here is in Cana of Galilee, and that's in the northern part of Israel. As I said to you again, this is this area of Israel that... I, I, I think I may have misspoken the other day. There are rabbis and there are people, if you will, that practice Judaism. But it's not known for that. Uh, Galilee is not known as an area where there's a lot of religious uh, uh, activity. It's mostly business. It's a lot to do with a rough and tumble kind of life. These people have intermarried with some Gentiles. And so in terms of purity in Judea, they would look at them as, ah, you know, they're, they're not quite as as uh, uh, religious as we are. And so this event occurs here in this area. Now, you may know this as well, but a marriage or a wedding in the ancient world, especially in Israel, was a week-long celebration. How about that? You know, the most weddings I'm a part of last about 25 minutes, and most of the grooms are going, you know, not very long. You think of all the time and the energy and and the input, but a wedding in the ancient world would last about a week. And, uh, you know, you you can read this in some of the uh, research of this era. And it was a huge event for a family, and it was also a matter of great honor for a family to have their daughter or son get married. In this context, what you discover is this is a pretty big deal. You know, I, I know people that go to weddings late and leave early. And they're sort of, yeah, we were there and they signed the book and, that, and that's about it. And, you know, people are ready to leave. I remember when we got married uh, after the wedding, I said to Becky, one hour and we're leaving, okay? One hour, that's it. I want to get out of here. We were in Kansas again, remember? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Kansas. Yeah. So, so, so this is a big deal, this wedding. Now, as you look here, it says this wedding feast, Jesus' mother had been invited and he had been invited as well. So it's a, it's a community sort of gathering. We're not sure exactly why they're there. They had lived in Nazareth and in that area, but it's close to Nazareth. And there may have been some family or friends or people uh, that they knew in extended family. Another thing uh, that is about this setting uh, that I think is significant for us is to understand uh, what's going on here. It says here that very early on, and we're not maybe the third day, if you will, uh, this idea that the wine ran out. Now, again, what we have to understand here, not only is where this takes place, but what this, what this means. Uh, in the ancient world, uh, if you will, in a wedding, 
if the uh, host or the host family uh, ran out of wine or food, if you will, it was considered a serious matter of shame. In fact, you can look at some of this, that in the ancient world, Israel was really not a guilt society. Some people have suggested that America and the developed world is a guilt society. Kind of, I did something wrong and I feel bad about it. Where Israel in the ancient world and some other places still in this world is a shame-honor society. A shame-honor society. That really, the idea of guilt is not really the notion. It's a matter of doing something that brings shame on you or on your family. So when this thing occurs where they have run out of, if you will, um, uh, wine, the real problem here is that it represents a shameful matter for this family. You know, I, I know when we've had people over at our home or, or whenever we've um, um, uh, in, uh, entertained people or something like that. Of course, I entertain people a lot outside of meals and stuff like that, but you'll get that. Uh, you know, one of the things that Becky always says to me, she goes, Cliff, always buy more, not less. Because you don't want your guests to think you're cheap, right? Or you don't want your guests to think yeah, you've eaten enough already, okay? It's, 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 it's plenty. Um, and, and I'm always reminded, always buy more, always have more than that. Some of that is, in this particular culture, that this idea of a shame-honor society, it's a serious matter, a serious matter. Now, it begs the question, why did they run out? Is it because the host and the groom did not prepare enough for this? Is it that the people, and in the ancient world here, there's a high... Um, uh, responsibility for everyone that comes to bring a gift? And, or is it that the people that came didn't bring what they were supposed to bring? They didn't bring the wine for the celebration, again, for an entire week. I remember when Becky and I got married, you know, one of the things we did when we got married and, and people would bring gifts and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, I, she would open a card like this, you know, she would go, oh, it, look here, Cliff, and this is why I open a card. Right? With me? Why? Why does a guy open a card like that? Yeah, here, Beck, read it. It's a 50. Yeah. And, and, you know, don't you feel some sense when you go to a wedding, you bring a gift, you know? Or the neat thing we've got now, people can register for what they want. Man, I wish that would have been going on when we were married. we got three toasters. And, uh, you know, uh, th- th- that this idea, so it, is it that the guests did not bring gifts? Did they not do their part? Whatever the case is, I just want to suggest to you, you, you can do some research on this if you, if you choose to. This represents a very serious problem for this family, for this wedding, and for this couple. I'll give you an example. I have a friend who was a doctor some years ago in China before the Cultural Revolution. His name is David Gawk. He's dead now, and so, you know, I, he, he, he's told this story himself. David was a, a surgeon in a missionary hospital in China. And uh, he was a pretty wound-up guy. I mean, you know, he had to go to school and spend a lot of time studying, and he'd invested a great deal of his life. And so he went there, lifelong desire to be a, a surgeon, a missionary surgeon. He tells the story that one day as they were working and he was uh, doing something, he had an assist, several assistants he was trying to train. And uh, this young man uh, who, uh, who uh, uh, was there to assist in the surgery did something wrong. David couldn't remember himself. 
But David, remember the tension that they were under, the struggle they were under, David kind of yelled at him and said, can't you do this right in front of everybody in the operating room? And David, this was again about 1944, 43, uh, 41, somewhere in there. David says that they all went home that evening, and the next day that young man invited he and his wife to dinner, to their home. And so they go over and have a lovely dinner, and they're just relaxing, spending time. And the young man then says to David, I must now resign because I have shamed my family and I have shamed myself. And David went, what? He said, yes, I've shamed my family, I have shamed myself, and I will no longer be working at the hospital. That was a shock to him because in America, that's just blowing some steam off. In America, that's just getting hacked off. In America, that's just ventilating a little bit what's bothering you. In a shame-honor culture, those kind of things are radically different. And so when this wine runs out, if you will, there is this serious concern. That's why Jesus' mother comes. So here we go. The second, the reason for the conversation. It's pretty clear, if you will, that the reason that Jesus' mother has this conversation with him is because there's a significant problem. Mary makes a request of her son Jesus. In fact, a human need, if you will. A matter of a human need here. Jesus, it's interesting to me, when Jesus, or Mary says, uh, they don't have any wine. They have no wine. Now, you know, Jesus, his response, we'll look at that in a moment. But he, but he says they, they don't have any more wine. What does she expect him to do? Now, up to this point, you need to remember or realize, Jesus had never performed a miracle yet. Not yet. Now, you know, you read apocalyptic literature, you know, which is not considered true. And you read in the apocalyptic literature, uh, the, you know, uh, different uh, versions, that when Jesus was a little boy, when he's about eight, he's telling everybody he's the son of God. And uh, they don't believe him. And, uh, you know, he's eight years old. And, you know, so the apocalypse story, Jesus picked up some dirt, threw it in the air and went, bird, and it flew off. (laughs) See, that's not true. (laughs) there seems to be Jesus living and growing in a very normal kind of way. But why did Mary say this to him? What was it about him that she knew? What was it about him at this point? Again, he had never performed a miracle to this point. My judgment is that she knew Jesus, and we're going to look at this in more detail in a moment, that Jesus would help in any way that he could. That Jesus was good and she could depend upon that. Jesus is here, there's a problem, and she just says, well, just, they have no wine, Jesus. What are you going to do about it? To me, that reason, at least it speaks to the notion that she knows something about him that we don't know at this point. Either he is willing to help, he is ready to help, or he has the capacity to help. Now, I wonder, I'm going to ask you this question, you don't have to answer it out loud, obviously. But when you think about Jesus in your life or your circumstances or your situation, where's the problem or is there a problem that you think, is he willing to help? Is he able to help? Can he help? You know, I I say to people sometimes, theoretically, I believe God can do anything. The question is what? Will he? Yeah, I mean, he could turn this platform into solid gold. He could. I mean, he has the power. The question is always, what is his level of willingness and I think Mary knows something about him. Obviously, his mother uh, at home, having him in her home for 30 years, 
even though there's never been a miracle yet that we can rely on, it's, it's this idea that I can depend on Him. Now, here's what I want to get to then third. It's the big one. The significance of this conversation. The significance. Now, there are two big things here, I think, that are going on. And so the first thing, uh, the significance uh, of this uh, conversation. You know, you've had those, haven't you? Whenever, you know, uh, back when you were uh, dating or with someone and your girlfriend or boyfriend said, we need to talk. And every guy goes, here we go. It's over. We're done. Right? I mean, that's, that's kind of the language of I, we need to break up. I remember Becky came home from her family, parents one time, and they loved me. You know, no, they didn't. <laughs> and you can understand why, right? Uh, I remember when we first went to visit her family, uh, and they met me for about 15 minutes. And then they asked Becky to meet them in a room. This, I'm, this is a true story. I'm not, I'm, I'm not kidding you. So they said, come talk with us. Now, I see this happening, and I'm surrounded by Alexanders. And all I start doing is talking more. <laughs> I decide, well, you know. And they take her off into a room by herself and say to her, after about 15 minutes of me, we don't think this is the guy. <laughs> and Becky has strong memories of that, about the significance of that moment, like pulling them up. She's saying, well, how do you know that? And they say, trust us, we know. And, you know, she obviously did not listen to them. Uh, and, uh, you know, after about 12 years, they started liking me. And that's not a joke either. <laughs> about 12, isn't it? We'll be married 35 years this summer, so after about 12, every time I take Becky home, her dad would say, thanks for bringing Becky home. I felt like a Greyhound bus driver, you know? I mean, that was a significant... And I remember talking to her on the way home, I said... What did they say? They said, well, they said this. I said, well, what do you think? Well, I think this. And I'm thinking, man, this, this is a significant conversation that they've had with her. And again, to my luck and wonder, uh, she stuck with me. There, there's something here about this significant conversation. I want you to look at, number one, there's some clarity. Jesus says to his mother, woman, what does that have to do with us? Now, not me. What does that have to do with us? We're, I'm your son. You're my mom. But what does that have to do with us? And then he says, she says, or he says, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Now, look at this in the, in the text, verse 4. Woman. Uh, some have suggested that this is a, a sort of a crass kind of way to address your mom. Woman, you know. I mean, if I said that to Becky, I'd, you know. I, I, I told her one time, I went to a conference and I said, look, I'm going to be the man of this house. I'm going to make the decision of this house. I'm going to, I'm going to lead our home. I didn't see her for a couple of weeks. <laughs> and then my eyes started opening just enough <laughs> where I could see her. Oh, there you are. Yeah. No, she didn't do that. Uh, but I'm telling you, if I said to Be Becky, hey, woman, that wouldn't go well. <laughs> no, no, no. You know, I, that, 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 but, but, this, but this word it is not, it's in a particular case in Greek that may suggest less than that, that it's not, 
if you will, uh, disrespectful. Uh, actually, Jesus used the same word in John 19, 26, when he's on the cross and he says, Woman, behold your son. Woman, behold your son. Now, there's no reason to believe that that is some kind of mocking, some kind of disrespectful statement. It is maybe a matter of clarity to know who you are and who I am. To know that I'm the Son of God. You're a woman. He doesn't call her mother. Woman. Woman. It's this idea of some kind of clarity that may be needing to be made. Because Jesus says, uh, my hour hasn't come. I mean, I, you know, I'll be honest with you. When my mom asks me anything, it's, I, you know, I don't know how to say no, right? Because I get to look like, you know, I carried you for nine months. And... <laughs> my mother also reminds me that she was in labor for about 60 hours. So, you know, and, uh, you know, got stuck with a needle 87 times. Jesus may be clarifying that here for her. And for us, the readers who knew that we would read this. Clarifying, if you will, that Jesus is saying, I'm on a different schedule than you are. Look what he says. My hour has not yet come. Now, if you read the Gospel of John, I'd recommend you do that. You'll notice that this phraseology of my hour comes up often. In John chapter 7, verse, I'm just going to give you John chapter 7, verse 30. In John chapter 8, verse 20. In John 17, verse 1, where Jesus would say in John 17, the hour has come. That is the idea that my life is on a schedule here and on a plan and on a tract that is related to my reliance upon my Father. Jesus seems to be indicating here that just because there's a need and just because somebody sees it, He's on a different program. Now, I think this is interesting, at least for me, as I worked through this this week and thought about it. Jesus is not, if you will, if, as you read the Gospels, you realize He doesn't heal every person in Galilee. And He doesn't fix every problem that He sees. And He doesn't respond to everything. He really lives His life with an awareness that He's on a mission. And there's an hour that will be His. And there's a time that will be His. And that there is not this frantic, almost frenetic, going through life thinking about, look at all these sick people, look at all these hungry people, look at all these blind people. There's a a sense in which Jesus has this calmness that He knows what He's about. My hour isn't here yet. What is that to me? Now, I'm not saying that Jesus is being unkind. I'm saying that Jesus is demonstrating a sense of certainty about His life as being directed by His Father. Now, I wrote this in my notes, and I I think it may have something to do with this, as it certainly has for me. It seems to me that people that are serious about following Jesus or people that are seriously involved in ministry often have trouble saying no. Right? They have trouble with that. 
In fact, I've got a friend that I, I'm kidding, I'm not kidding, he's a good friend of mine, he's always getting involved. And I said, now say this word after me. No. Because we want to serve Jesus and we want to follow him and we want to, we want to be of some value and service to him. And some of us are wound up enough that we've come to the point, if you will, and this is why I'm going to say it, that the need is the call. I don't believe that. I don't believe the need is the call. Now, I want to be careful here. I'm also not suggesting that all of us just sit around in a hammock and lay around till Jesus comes back either. They're too, too strong. It's probably a dialectic. Haven't heard that word in three weeks, have you? <laughs> yeah. It's probably a dialectic that on the one hand, as followers of Jesus, we don't just lay around and wait till Jesus comes back. On the other hand, do we live with a sense of certainty about who we are and what we're to be doing and by implication, what we're not supposed to be doing? Do you ever think about that? I mean, there are lots of needs. We're going to hear about a need today. Becky and I were talking about that coming to church today with this guy from the International Justice League. It's a huge need. Is everybody called to it? I don't think so. I think that one of the struggles that people seem to struggle with is to have some clarity. What's my life about? What do I say yes to? And by inference, what am I able to say no to? Instead of just frenetically going through life and responding, you know, I'm a, I'm, I know you'd make some, I'm a people pleaser. I don't do it very often, but I'd like to. <laughs> I really am. I'm a, I, like, I like to please people. When people come to ask me to do something, you know what my first response is? Yes. Yes. And then I look at my schedule. My wife has talked to me about this several times. And she says, Cliff, what, look at all you're doing here. And I say, well, it keeps me out of trouble, you know. But it also at times just wears me slick. You ever felt like that? Why? Because sometimes when good things come and when there are needs, and there is a need here in this text, and fascinatingly, Jesus will, will, will deal with it and work with it. But his initial response is to say, what does that have to do with us? Can you say that? <laughs> Can you say that to a need and say to a person, look, I know this is a real need. I know this is a real issue here. But I've got to get some clarity about what's my part in that. We call it boundaries. We call it setting up. I remember reading this some years ago. I remember a guy said that if you do everything that everybody else wants you to do, you will suddenly cease to be a person. You'll only be an extension of what they want. That hit me hard. I thought, wow. You know, I'm just going to be an extension of everybody else, what they want me to do. Now, I'm not talking about being rigid and, and lazy and not being involved. But there is in this conversation some clarity. Here's the question for you and me. Do you know what God has really called you to? Do you know, can you with some clarity say, I mean, you know, you got a job and a yard and a house. But Jesus says, I've got an hour I'm moving toward. This isn't it. So what is that to me? Now, I think out of Jesus' kindness and compassion, He's going to respond. But I'm glad He said this because He's saying, this has got to line up with what I believe to be the goal and purpose of my life. You know, I have people sometimes, really, not often, not a lot, but, you know, I'll have 
I, I was saying one time, you know, I feel like that one of the things that God has called me to do is teach and to mentor students. And I remember some years ago the church showed great um, compassion and lack of judgment by asking me to be an elder. <laughs> and I remember saying to the guys, I said, I love those guys, and they're wonderful. And I enjoy the fellowship. But I just said, if being an elder begins to conflict with teaching or mentoring students, I'm out. Okay? Much as I love it, much as enjoyable that it is, I'm out. That's not my hour. That's not my calling to be an elder. I mean, if I can do it and I can help, I will. But that's not what I'm called to. Now, I just, I just want to put a little bug in your ear, my dad would always say, which is a pretty gross thing if you think about it. Do you have that kind of clarity? Doesn't mean you have to be in ministry. Doesn't mean you have to be a pastor or a teacher. It means you have some awareness. What's your hour? What's your hour? You know, I did some research not long ago. I, I told Becky, I said, I'm gonna, I think I'll be able to retire when I'm 86. And I did some research that indicated that there is some correlation, at, not everybody, some correlation between men who retire, and how soon after that they die. Their wife kills them? No. no. (laughs) Maybe he wants to. (laughs) Yeah. Because there is some research that indicates that when a man suddenly now has, if you will, I'm not saying everybody does this, I'm just saying it can happen. There's not much clarity now about who I am. What am I about? What's my life about? Remember, uh, Stephen Olford made this statement. I thought it was great when he said, hey, you know what? It's not the duration of your life. It's the donation. It's not the duration of your life. It's not how long. It's the donation. And I know men, and you know people, who maybe have lost a job, who maybe had all kinds of problems, but they have never lost their sense of who they are. And what is my life about? I think Jesus may be helping us here to bring some clarity to this, to say, mother or woman, woman, what is that to me? My hour has not yet come. I know whose schedule I'm on. And I have to ask myself that question, you know. Did you know there's a difference between serving sometimes religion and religious practices and serving God? There have been times when I've had to say, am I trying to do this to please God or am I trying to do this to please people? Am I trying to do this to get God's, you know, not that I have to earn it, but to to, to honor and and, and bless God or am I getting it to get pats on the back? That's the wrong schedule. Have to keep calibrating that constantly. Now, Jesus, here we go. We say this, he says, fill the water pots up. Now, there were six stone water pots of the Jewish custom of purification. Jesus tells them to fill them up. We read the story, and then all of a sudden, it turns to wine. And the, the, the steward says to the bridegroom, Hey, man, you, this is better wine than we've had before. Well, I'll look at that just for a moment. But notice what he says. This was the beginning of his signs, verse 11, that Jesus did in Galilee. I, I want to look here at the significance of this conversation, also that it's a sign. A sign. Now, 
The, the whole thing is, and I, I don't want to make this thing walk on all four legs. There are people that try to make this all allegorical and metaphorical. I, I'm not trying to do that. But I will say this. There's something about this story that is a sign. Now, what does that mean? A sign. In Greek, the word semeon, it means something that is seen or understood that represents something beyond itself. Beyond itself. It, it's something you see, but it represents something beyond. I, I was thinking about my dad with this. Uh, my dad was a great guy, and, but he'd get pretty upset if he ever saw somebody disrespecting the American flag. That's because that bunch of material with colors represented something beyond that to him. My dad would say, this colors represent men and women who died on a foreign field to, to have our freedom. See, that, that flag was something beyond itself. When I think about a wedding ring, a wedding ring is a sign. It's just metal. It, it may be valuable, may not be valuable. But it, but it comes as a sign to say it represents something beyond itself. Something beyond itself. It's interesting that this word is used here when it says this was the beginning of Jesus' signs. What is the sign? There are two of them here. Real quick, I'm going to hurry. Two signs in this wedding. Number one is that it's a wedding feast. It's a wedding feast. It's a wedding feast. You know, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, the sign or the symbol of the coming of the Messiah is a huge party. Do you know that? Think about that. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, it talks about this great wedding feast party that's going to happen. It's interesting that Jesus uses His first miracle to indicate the sign. Here, this wedding is a sign, it's, it's it, but it's reflecting something else to come. It's a wedding feast of the kingdom. That the symbol that Jesus wants us to get in this conversation is my kingdom. And I know this sounds a little crass, but here's the truth. My kingdom is about party. <laughs> party. Let me, do you think of God's kingdom like that? Do you think of it? You know, when Jesus one time was eating with, we'll look at this later, but he was eating with a bunch of sinners and they were having a party. And they said, what are you doing here? And he said, I came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus refined or defined his ministry in terms of a party. Now, I want to tell you something. This is just my observation. And I've been part of this. Some of us aren't very good at partying. Are we? Come on. You know, my dad would say, some of us look like we've been drinking sour pickle, sour pickle juice. I love the Lord, you know. He's, uh, yeah. But, but this symbol of a party, of a wedding, of a banquet... The book of Revelation even ends with a marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 19. This idea that this wedding feast is a sign, it's, it's projecting forward, it's projecting out to say, my kingdom, my, my organization, my plan, whatever you want to call it, is about a kingdom that's a party, that's a marriage feast, that's a celebration. I mean, you know, when you go to a wedding, you know, everybody's smiling, generally. Everybody's happy, Generally, you know, except the dad who's paying for it. But uh, you can always pick him out. Oh, yeah, there, you know. Yeah. These times of great celebration, great opportunities to celebrate. And I think, again, that if we're not careful, if we miss this, that what we begin to think is that Christianity is all about service. It's all about serving. It's all about giving. It's all about enduring. It's, those are all true. 
But what's the feature that Jesus wanted to use the very first time? A party. A feast. A wedding. What what does that tell you about the relationship that Jesus wants with you? With me? What does it tell you that the wedding is a symbol throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament and the New? That salvation, if you will, is about, if you will, a celebration. Second symbol here in this sign is wine. Now, wine is a symbol in the Old Testament and in the New of salvation. You can go look at it. It's in Jeremiah 31, 12, Joel 3, 18, Amos 9, 13. Now, this, this, this topic, I know wine, creates all kinds of controversies and questions. My students want to talk about it all the time. The thing is here is there seems to be, if you will, something going on in the, this, this symbolism of wine. It, it gladdens the heart, as some authors in the Bible say. It, it causes people to rejoice. Now, in the ancient world, they drank it because the water would kill you. Water 4 hadn't been developed yet, but, uh, you know, it would kill you. Uh, in, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's old wine that was considered more alcohol and sweeter and new wine that was basically grape juice. And there's huge arguments here, and I know people are, you know, was it alcoholic or not? You know, I don't care at this point. What I care about is that Jesus used another sign, another symbol that's all through the Old Testament that again would cause people to think there is some kind of rejoicing. There is some kind of celebration. So here's the question for you and me, I think. How could you enact the celebratory nature of the kingdom of God this week? Is our primary thought about the kingdom of God a matter of celebrating? I think, again, because salvation is a serious matter, because eternity is a serious matter, because Jesus is an important reality in our life, that if we're not careful, we lose the joy and celebration. You, You think that's true? Do we get sour and backward and it's all about thinking and teaching instead of couldn't we just cut it loose for a little bit and celebrate? Kind of like we do at an OU football game. You know, everyone's, not me, but you, you know. That, that, that idea, yes. Does that make sense? All right, then the last one, we've got to hurry. Glory. It says there that this was the first sign that he did manifesting his glory. Now, glory is a word that's hard to define, uh, but it is able to be experienced. Um, I sort of remember the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court never has given a definition of pornography, but they say we know it when we see it. Do <laughs> you know that? We don't have a definition of it. We know it when we see it. It's sort of like glory. Terrible illustration, I know. It's terrible. It's only one. We, the word glory, doxa in Greek and kavod in Hebrew, it, it, it often represents the idea of heaviness, substantiveness. And it's always associated with God. Now let me show you something. This is a picture I took when we went to Israel. I think I mentioned that. That uh, is called Mount Scopus. When you look over the mountain for the first time. This is the first time I ever saw Jerusalem in my life two years ago. Dan had taken us to this little area. We parked the car and I walked over. There's the wall, as you can see. Dome of the Rock. And it goes around. I, I want to tell you, when, when I saw that, I, I, nearly, I, I nearly went to my knees. I don't know if it was doxa or kavod, glory, but I experienced it. I couldn't define it, but I could experience it. 
I mean, you travel all across the world, you hear about this place, and you stand, and there is the city. You can think about, back here is the old city of David, the Kidron Valley, all this down here, Bethlehem's back over, and I'm standing, and all of a sudden, it's like, whoa! Maybe when you've gone to the Grand Canyon or something, that's occurred. Glory. The, the idea of glory, it was to reveal His glory. How do you do that? I'm going to tell you real quick. The glory of God and the glory of Jesus in this particular story is not His power, although there's some power involved changing water to wine. That's just something He did. I think God's glory is rooted in His goodness. The reason I say that is this. God's glory is His goodness. Jesus is saying, it's not my hour, but I'll do this anyway. It's not the hour. This is not part of my program here. But I'll do it. The the idea of God's glory, Jesus' glory. The reason I say that is this. In Exodus 33, you can go back and read it later. Exodus 33, Moses says to God, I want to see your glory. I want to see your glory. And God says, Nat, you can't look upon me. You'll die. You, you, you'll die. And so they keep talking a little bit. And then God says, go, go read it. It's, it's very instructive here. God says to Moses, I'm going to pass by you. And as I pass by, I'm going to... Now Moses is asked to see God's glory. He says, I'm going to pass all my goodness by you. And put my hand over your eye. He doesn't say, I'm going to have my glory go by you. That's what Moses is asked to see. He says, I'm going to have all of my goodness pass by you. And I want to suggest an alternative understanding of the idea of glory. That the glory of God that the people in that day missed was not that He came riding in on a steed like the Roman conquerors. Not that He came in like some military ruler to take the joint over, which you would think, that's pretty glorious. The glory of God in Jesus is His goodness. That's why in 17 He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son. How? On a cross? There's no glory there, folks. Not if you're looking at it as a real issue. If you're looking at it as a Christian through theological lenses. Not as a person that day passing it. The goodness of God is the glory of God. That's why it says all have fallen short of God's goodness. Think about that for a second. If if, if we've just fallen short of God's glory, we can't play tennis like God would play tennis. Or we couldn't run a country like God could run a country. that's That's just off the map anyway. Everybody knows that. For we've fallen is God's goodness. Did you know God is supremely good? He is supremely kind. There is no one in the universe like Him. He has no selfishness. He possesses no self-interest. He is always other-oriented. That's His glory. 
like no other God. Listen, the, the Roman world and the Greek world are filled up with gods who get their way. They're filled up with gods who are powerful. They're filled up with gods who can do anything they want to do. They're filled up with gods that push and shove people around all over the universe. The Christian gospel is the God that is completely different than any of those guys. He's the God that His glory is in His unfathomable goodness. And it showed God's glory that day. So here's the question. How can you reveal God's glory this week by participating in good? You know what? It may not even be religious in nature. It just might be being good. It might be opening the door for a single mom who's got three kids and a harness and trying to drive them like a mule train. You know? You ever seen those? Or, or, or it could be to pick up the, the newspaper in your next door neighbor's yard and just tear it up to their porch. Why? Just, it's just what? Good. It's just good. This is where Jesus reveals His glory. And I would just say to you, this is why everybody misses it. They expect a powerful God. They expect a conquering hero. They expect a God who's going to come in and clean house. And you know what He does? He serves others. This was the first time. The first sign of clarity and of glory here with Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how we need to see you clearly so we can love you more dearly and follow you more nearly. Open our hearts and minds in this conversation to see you. Maybe as we have not seen you before or maybe with a little more clarity, we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. See you next week.